For November 18th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 281, White House Down. This is specifically about the tank top of the protagonist. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather from Los Angeles. This week, is the White House up? No. The White House is down. <laughs> down. <laughs> In a the summer... enemy's White House is down. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little uh, late to this party because this film was released earlier this summer. Part of actually uh, like a trio, a, a, an inadvertent trilogy of films uh, having to do with the White House being the security of the White House being compromised or the White House being uh, the target of an attack. Uh, Olympus has fallen, White House down, and this summer's G.I. Joe movie. Um, the, oh, the, yeah, that one. The, the last of which yeah. uh, we covered. So uh, now, now we're uh, two for three after this podcast, and, and I guess we can uh, find Olympus Has Fallen down at the red box in the grocery store and see if it's, uh, see if it's any good. Uh, but panel, um, in honor of uh, White House Down, I'm given to understand, I'm, I'm the sole member of the panel uh, tonight who hasn't seen the movie, uh, but I'm given to understand that uh, just as... Uh, Air Force One with um, uh, just as Air Force One uh, with Harrison Ford involves a uh, tour of Air Force One, you know, the, the like you might get in a tourist brochure or a uh, or a website about, how, you know, how great the executive office of the president is. Um, so so too does White House Down involve a uh, like a guided tour, a large guided tour portion or a large portion of tourist brochure copy uh from uh a tour of the white house that's that's correct does you, it ever <laughs> oh it does Matt. it sure does so it uh has because this is the sort of field trip that you might have taken uh as an eighth grader um our question this week panel uh i put it to you what other middle school field trip uh would you like to see become an action movie what other place did you go uh, in your early adolescence uh, that, uh, you know, terrible, world-changing, uh, high-stakes goings-on uh, could, um, you know, could transpire at? In other words, what's the next thing to go down? Uh, first in the alphabet, drink, because it's Peter Fenzel. Oh, I was on mute because I was typing because I was looking up the name of the place that I went for the thing that I did. <laughs> right, you know what? Maybe I'll just toss it out to you guys because I was going through the different places I toured when I was in middle school. Now, high school had some more interesting, uh, some more interesting tourist destinations like Civil War battlefields and whatnot. But oh, middle school, okay. so, yeah, I'll go if you need, need to stall, Pete. If you need no, 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 no. I'll, I'll pitch this question to you guys. So there is a food court. In Philadelphia, right? That is, <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there like a giant? It's like, is it like, it's on Market Street, I think. Uh, is it like the old Bourse or something? There's like, oh, I'm trying to remember. It might be the Bourse. Uh, it's like an old stock exchange or something like that in Philadelphia. Because I remember going to a museum where we saw a bunch of pictures of George Washington, and I think we saw the Liberty Bell, but everybody knows that the highlight of that tour, at least in like, you know, 1991, uh, touring Philadelphia, was to get to go to this big, giant base mini food court in this old building uh, where you could like take the $20 or $15. I guess back then in 1991, it was like 75 cents, right? Because of inflation. And, and, you know, back then you could buy a pair of shoes for a nickel. Uh, but no, like and you could buy like,
like a cheesesteak, but it wasn't a real cheesesteak. But you thought it was because you didn't know any better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> are, are you talking about the uh, the Reading Terminal? Is that the is that the uh, thing? That's that's possible. That's possible. Um, let me see. I think it's the I think it's the no. It's the Bourse. Uh, it's the Bourse at Independence Mall is what it is. Okay. <laughs> ever, yeah, yeah. If you've ever been to the Bourse at Independence Mall, it's got like a Chinese restaurant. I'm looking at it right now. You can meet <laughs> Ben Franklin's ghost. It's right there. It says you can meet Ben Franklin's ghost there and he'll talk to you. And they appear to have a proprietary video player of some kind that I don't want to launch for fear of crashing my Skype. But yes, <laughs> it, would be, uh, it would be called the Bourse. Uh, and it would be about how uh, – <laughs> How all of the gangsters in Philadelphia who are like staging a series of uh, of raids around town have like all coincidentally and for entirely different reasons decided to have lunch in the same food court, and so uh, a class trip that has left the Liberty Bell also ends up in the food court, and the children get taken hostage by a variety. Each gang takes a different child hostage, and you get to file their each and each of their dads, which is a cop from a different city in the general Philadelphia region, <laughs> like one from Wilkes from uh, Wilkesbury and one from Baltimore, and they all try to save their children simultaneously from a food court hostage situation. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like it's the Van Helsing of these movies, right? Because you have like every different local cop Right. Oh, because it's because it's like the vampires and the werewolves and like the Pope with the holy hand grenades and whatnot. Um, Because yeah. the Van Helsing had like a com. Oh yeah, because Frankenstein was in Van Helsing too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Just you take yeah, like five yeah, yeah. different monster movies and smash them together. Whereas here you're going to have like I'm not leaving here without my daughter. Well, I'm not leaving here without my daughter. Not, I'm not leaving here without my my self-identifying daughter who's biologically a boy but is going through some changes and it could be diverse. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, and, and in the show notes uh, there's a link to the Bourse at Independence Mall and also a link to the definition of the word Bourse uh, just in case you need that as I did just a it's second French, ago for stock exchange. it's just a French word for stock exchange that's all it is there you go anyway. uh, so uh, next in the alphabet Mark Lee okay uh, growing up in uh, Birmingham Alabama uh, uh, the, 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 a popular school trip was to uh, this wonderful caves or caverns it was called DeSoto Caverns um, I, uh, this is the place where I learned the difference between the stalactite, uh, which is tight to the ceiling, and the stalagmite, which might grow up to the top and might eventually reach that stalactite and create one of those column things, which probably has a name, a specific name, which I'm forgetting, because apparently the tour wasn't that great. Okay, anyway, DeSoto Caverns is pretty awesome, just as a cave, as a geological site, um, but it has a lot of potential for an action movie. Uh, here's why. Um, first of all, it's named after for, uh, Hernando de Soto. Uh, who was one of the Spanish conquistadors. So, you know, he could work in some legend about his lost gold that's in there. Um, you know, so that that provides like a, you know, um, a goal for the different forces that work in this movie to go after. And uh, since it's set in Alabama, and also because this cave apparently was used during the Civil War, the people going after the gold could be uh, Confederate sympathizers or white supremacists, which, uh, you know, they, they factor prominently into White House Town. Except they also don't factor prominently into White House Town. We'll get to that later. Um, so you could have some, like, you know, crazed uh, Confederate rednecks going after the gold, um, you know, going up against uh, oh, the, the National Guard or, you know, like a Nick Cage-esque National Treasure kind of guy. Uh, let's have it that. But, okay, all that's fine and good, right? This is, you just have that and that'd be a great action movie but we need to really just take this over the top you know you gotta like you know get into that car and do donuts on the white house lawn to really to, to make this uh stand out in this uh, saturated era of the blockbuster movie the soto caverns happens to be in talladega county alabama what else oh, i asked no. you is in talladega <laughs> county alabama yes i am of course referring to the talladega speedway right which will 
naturally lends itself to a NASCAR chase inside of the caverns, which would be awesome. Nice. Right? I mean, who, who doesn't want to see this movie now? Huh? Huh? Under, underground chase. It would be like, uh, it would be like Temple of Doom uh, all over again. Except better. Yeah, I know. Except with, the, with motors. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think that what Temple of Doom really lacks in that long cart, cart on the track scene is, uh, you know, d- internal combustion engines propelling the carts at, at ever greater and greater speeds. So anyway, the movie is called DeSoto Caverns, uh, DeSoto's Lost Gold. Nice. Nice. Uh, Jordan Stokes, next in the alphabet, what's, the, uh, what, what's going down? So man, I was I was totally gonna do Colonial Williamsburg, and then I remembered that that's actually an episode of South Park that they they actually did, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so so forget that. Uh, my answer is the Aquarium, and my movie is Jaws three. It's not very good, actually. <laughs> Jaws Jaws three D, right? Yes, yes, right. <laughs> Perish the thought that we should leave that D off of there. <laughs> um, a- exciting. Would would you change anything about Jaws three, or would you, uh, you know, I don't know, well, make heck, it? I'd, I'd make it better. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd change the part that was Jaws three. I guess. <laughs> I mean, you could you could do like Sharktopus, right? Or uh, I don't know something I guess. like that. I don't know Sharknado. So what what role would the children going on the tour of the aquarium have in the Jaws movie in your remaking of Jaws 3? Well, I mean, they're they're the same thing that children always are in these movies, right? As they are they're a convenient sort of MacGuffin uh that prevents you from letting the authorities do their job. Although in a way like Jaws 3 is not a very a very good example for these sorts of things because there is no designated authority, uh, to my knowledge, that's invo- involved with like handling specifically voodoo shark attacks, right? <laughs> like normal sharks, fine. I'm sure there's like fish and game or something, but it is a voodoo shark in Jaws 3D, right? And that I think is beyond all uh, jurisdictions. I do like how you look to us for confirmation and like the perhaps misplaced confidence that we've all seen Jaws 3D. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, I figured if there was ever a crowd, right? But yeah, you, know, you think you know somebody. I mean, we saw White House down, right? We'll, yeah. we'll watch anything. <laughs> it was so surprising that we all managed to see that movie except for Matt. <laughs> it didn't look like that. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so. I, in in the eighth grade, I went on a field trip to uh, Joshua Tree uh, out in the desert in California, and we went rock climbing. Um, it was like a uh, environmental sort of outdoor uh, education sort of trip. Um, and so I'm going to take liberties with my answer uh, and move to another desert and uh, set my action movie at uh, the Burning Man Festival. Uh, because <laughs> I think the only thing that could make burners more awesome is uh, automatic weapons. And, uh, you know, I don't know, a big climactic scene at the, the gigantic uh, party at the end where they burn the man, where it, like, goes up in, in, uh, in more flames than usual, I guess. You'd need a way of raising the stakes. I mean, right, like, maybe they're, they bomb the burning man or, or something like that. Um, and, the, uh, and only our, you know, ragtag band of half-naked, uh, dirty, body-painted hippies, right, can save the that world. Are, that are also eighth graders on a tour? Yeah, I guess so. We're not. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't imagined that 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 we would be there. I'm I'm taking some liberties. I know with the, with the question. I, I imagine a a fully of age 
uh, set of body painted, uh, body painted half naked hippies, um, you know, high on whatever the hell it is they get high on these days. And, uh, you know, I don't know, bartering, right. Bartering like seashell necklaces for swigs from a, uh, container of mystery liquor uh i i actually have never been to burning man i don't know what goes on there but but i'm given to understand that that's not far off um uh can can save the world from you know i don't know some sort of malevolent force like like the man you know i don't know tries to bomb burning man uh because all the hippies are there and we want to get rid of the hippies so that the square community can can rise again and uh you know um they they contrive some elaborate contraption made out of pvc pipe duct tape and um you know i don't know glitter uh and good old fashioned american pluck uh to right to defeat the the uh, you know, black suited forces of, of the man. Um, that's, that's my movie. I think that where you have to go with that is that the, uh, like the, the evil square guys plot is to pack the burning man full of some kind of substance that if you breathe in the smoke, then no drug will ever work on you again. <laughs> And then you uh, then you travel back in time and sell the script to like to Cheech Marin in the 1970s, and you make a whole bunch of money off of it. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's great. Uh, the the Burning Man, Burn Harder is uh, is the title I'm working with. Though I'm open to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to, or maybe Burn One. You know, I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> Free or Burn Hard. <laughs> So uh so there is our question and we'll move uh we'll move right into White House Down. Uh so I I didn't see this film um but I would like to uh I'd like to go to social media uh to something that that Pete wrote uh on his <laughs> on his Facebook page um a status that he posted and and I'd like to just kick off uh, with this as the kind of the resolution that begins our great debating society of the overthinking podcast here. Uh, Pete wrote two hours ago, and the status is marked as edited, by the way. Uh, White House Down is five gallons of amazing poured into a half gallon jug of why am I watching this? It's like <laughs> it's like Shakespeare wrote an airline safety card and no one told him what a plane was. <laughs> Can you explain, Pete, yeah. what, what you mean by that so last thing? First sentence? of all, the things I edited were the size of the jugs because I was trying to figure out the funniest numbers. So for, is it five gallons of water in a 10-gallon jug? I've settled on five gallons into a half-gallon jug. All right, so so this is – the most important thing you can know about White House Down is that it's by – well, I would say it's by Roland Emmerich, but that by itself as a single piece of information is not useful. What you want to know is that Roland Emmerich is the Independence Day guy, right? And there are, there are weak Roland Emmerich movies and weak Roland Emmerich movie moments and strong Roland Emmerich movie. It's Roland Emmerich movie moments. The strong ones being like, you know, the dog is is getting gets to jump in the door when the wall of fire is coming through the tunnel in Independence Day, right? And it's like, oh good, she saved the dog, right? When like <laughs> the hundreds of people are burning alive. Um, White House Down is full of these amazing they're they're two they're utterly earnest and totally ridiculous at the same time characters and relationships you know like the tough talking president who's got the chain gun coming after him and like the um you know the tour guide guy who has to smack the terrorist with the giant uh, 19th century german clock right and uh and you know channing tatum as the everyman dressed exactly like john mcclane like it has all these ridiculous one-liners i mean there's a whole running gag about the pen and the sword that ends with jamie Fox 
Fox, the president of the United States, actually stabbing James Woods in the neck with a pen, saying, I choose the pen, right, over oh, the sword. This, this might be a good <laughs> moment to say blanket spoilers. Oh, blanket spoilers. James Woods gets so dead. He's so dead at the end of this movie. He's so bad. And, like, Channing Tatum fires him, uh, kills him with a vehicle-mounted, like, 50-caliber Gatling gun from, like, 25 <laughs> feet away inside the Oval Office. Right, <laughs> like he drives, he absconds with like a, a like a, a suburban with a ve- with like a vehicle mounted like anti anti vehicle anti personnel automatic fully automatic weapon Gatling gun situation crashes it through the window of the Oval Office where all that's waiting for him is James Woods <laughs> and just like just freaking machine guns him to death from like six feet away so anyway you can tell from my my enthusiasm and just the inability to process everything that's happening in this movie there are glorious glorious moments that really seem to capture. I, I, I thought a lot about whether it's like, is it he, is it us looking into, is it him looking into our dreams and trying to put them on screen the way he thinks we ought to like to see them? Or is he looking at his own dreams and just is, is able to sort of fail to process any sort of, um, of like cynicism or irony about them, right? Like, but at the same time, they are terribly ironic because they're sarcastic and it's hard to tell if they're serious. Anyway, all this gushing, all these characters. I mean, think of Jeff Goldblum in Independence Day throwing the can into the recycling bin and saying, you know, I always wanted to save the planet, right? Right before he makes the, the uh, virus that improbably stops the alien spaceship. Like, there are tons of little moments like that in this movie that sort of sing with movie-making magic and, and just glorious ridiculousness and melodramatic sentimentality and total earnestness that said the 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 main obstacle for every character in this movie protagonist antagonist supporting characters is that the white house as a physical building is large and complicated like that is like the main thing that every person is dealing with (laughs) like like no at the building because it's a really big building, right? And they and like the tour guide is being taken hostage and nobody's asking him where anything is except for Channing Tatum, which is why he's the protagonist because he cares. But no, it's like the first 20 minutes of the movie are basically a tour of the White House. Uh, and then the rest of it is like, oh, we have to go to this room in the White House and this room in the White House. Uh, don't worry. <laughs> what it is is it's the quiz at the end of the tour. When the tour guide's yeah. like, there's going to be a quiz at the end, it's that with chain guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like the guy from Zero Dark Thirty is running around with a machine gun in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> How do you get it? <laughs> And so, I mean, I know there are a lot of things on TV and movies where the president is taken hostage inside the White House, most notably being that season of 24 where the imaginary African country from imaginary town, like, came in through the sewers, right, and, like, uh, and kidnapped the president. But this is just so much more about the building and how it's like, how do I get around? Like, there's even a point where they get the president out, and Mark will probably talk about this, too. They managed to get the president out of the White House, away from the terrorists, but, like the problems that are happening inside the building are so pressing and so utterly confusing to everyone else involved that the best move is to take the president back into the White House. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Get luncher. <laughs> it's just like it's like at any point during the third act of this movie, the DC police could like walk up to the building and stop it. But everyone is so confused as to what's happening in the movie because they don't know what's happening inside of the White House because it's got bunkers and it's got crazy wings going on. 
on and like there are explosions going off in various parts of it and they're trying to like monitor it from like a war bunker that's in some undisclosed location via satellite rather you know and so like nobody knows where it is so that's the main also to, to be fair to the dc police uh they um there were hostages in the White House as well, right? So that's like, they can't just like walk up to the thing uh, yeah. and, and start shooting the, the terrorists People inside. There's nobody guarding the hostages, I think, for much of the third act of them. Oh, no, the guy from Breaking Bad who, who, uh, who looks like Steve Zahn was guarding the hostages, right? <laughs> um, so that one guy. But like, it's like at one point it gets down to the president of the United States fist fighting James Woods. <laughs> um, and it's like, you know, anyone could help at this point, like literally anyone. I think the little girl almost helps, but doesn't quite because she's like 10. Um, but yeah, but that's, that, I've gone on for a long time. But that was basically what I mean, is that the overarching structure of the movie is, look at all of the different rooms in the White House. Here's a picture of when it was set on fire in 1812. Foreshadowing, it's going to be set on fire before the end of the movie, right? Like, several times. <laughs> Not all of them are going to be bad. Some of them are going to be good. Uh, and like, oh, there's the, you know, this bedroom and this room and the library. Where's the president's secret bunker? That's not on the tour. There, there even is a point, Matt, they're like, there's like this, the, the, big, the big, you know, remember how on Independence Day they had the Area 51 plot twist? Do I? Right? Oh, it's a great plot twist where it's like, there is no Area 51, Mr. President. That's not entirely accurate, right? And then it's like, wow, they're actually going to go there. The equivalent in White House Down is that there are actually catacomb tunnels underneath the White House that JFK used to smuggle Marilyn Monroe in and out of the White House. And the tour guides all insist it's a myth, but people in the know know that they're real, and that's how they manage to get uh, they manage to get out, right? That's how they manage to survive. You know how they get in or how they get out? They go in and out of the White House a lot, uh, and there's like Delta forces there. Anyway, I should- <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the, the great thing about those tunnels is that they actually serve no purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Several times people try to go out through those tunnels, but like there's a booby trap on one of the doors. They're like, all right, we have to turn around and go back, and then eventually, like one of the bad guys tries to do it and blows himself up with his own trap. So really the only function that those tunnels serve is to be like, yeah, JFK brought Marilyn Monroe through these. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You set it up up early and say they don't exist, and then you say later, and you're like, but they do exist, and it's hilarious. So yeah. So So, let me me, me hop in here for a moment. Okay, Okay, because what you're describing, Pete, you know, these are all very true things about... Uh, about the movie, right? I ain't lying. I ain't lying. And um, I, I'd say that the, the you know the fact that it uses uh, the White House and sort of the complexity of the structure itself so heavily in the plot, it's not really a bug. It's it's very much a feature, right? <laughs> like, it, sure, there are issues with how they went about doing that. What, what made this movie say less than stellar? Uh, it's a terrible. No, actually, what made the movie <laughs> terrible actually had nothing to do with the White House itself. It was the ridiculous, ridiculous set of reveals and swapping around with like who takes the oath of office of president and the ridiculousness <laughs> with the Speaker of the House being the evil bad guy all along who was um, did this whole ridiculousness of um, capturing the president and also wanting to nuke Iran just to. Um, uh, to, to save defense contracts? Yes, yeah, that was right. the story. <laughs> like, after is, all that, the ga- Okay, so the bad guy's plan in this movie. The bad guy is the speaker of the house, right? And the bad guy and the president has announced he's going to withdraw all troops from the Middle East, right? Because uh, we're going to have peace now. And and the and the speaker of the house gets campaign contributions for defense contractors. So he hires uh, the head of the Secret Service. He like gets the head of the Secret Service to flip on the president, hires him to be like his right hand man, then has him assemble a collection of like the head of anonymous or the king of the hackers as they 
refer to him as he's played by a McPoyle as well, which is hilarious. Uh, and then, like a series of white supremacists who want to assassinate the president because he's black into the and then like like a disenchanted Delta Force guy to take the president hostage, presumably kill him, right? Like no, and, and use use his um, author authorization. Yes, they need his blood and his hand. To like open the unlock the case the nuclear football and then la- and then kill him launch a missile at the- so use the president's DNA to hack the planet uh, no no they hack the planet first and then they launch a missile Pete, get a your- hold of yourself my goodness <laughs> what is the order of events that happens in okay. the movie okay do they hack so the, the planet-, planet do they unlock the the iPhone 5s with the president's thumbprint do they what do they do here. You have to kidnap the president, and you have to take him to his bunker. When this happens, the vice president will get – because you remember, you're the speaker of the house. You're not the vice president. You have to kill both of them. So the vice president <laughs> is going to get a plane. He's going to get on Air Force One, and he's going to try to get evacuated, right? Uh, when he's evacuated, you will have used a secret bunker in the basement of the White House to hack into <laughs> missile sites in Ohio. You will launch a missile at Air Force One, <laughs> killing the vice president. You will then use the president's hand and blood to unlock the physical suitcase where the uh, where the, the nuclear football is. You will then, having, having convinced everyone the president is dead, yourself be sworn in as president, authorize a nuclear strike against Iran yourself, use a pager to page the nuclear codes you now have have from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to James Woods, who's hanging out in the Oval Office with presumably the president's dead body and the nuclear football. And and then through this, you will launch a nuclear war against Iran, which will secure like $5 million maybe in campaign contributions. Just just to be clear, the the nuclear football still works for the handprint of the president, who was president two presidents ago. Exactly. It wasn't a failsafe to like, you know, to override that. This is like a... The, the point is that the movie is kind of convoluted when it comes to the plot. Right? <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess. But, so Mark is saying that this, that the, the, are you saying that these moments lacked drama, Mark? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, when they're like, Mr. Speaker of the House, we need you to be sworn in. And he looks all scared because you don't know he's the bad guy yet. And he's like, oh no, this is crazy. Okay, or- those moments in and of themselves did not lack <laughs> drama. Right, but I'm stating the obvious here. But it's important to state the obvious: is that like the convoluted series of events and the complete lack of logic underpinning them, like takes away all of the meaning and totally undermines all of the drama that you saw before. Right, like just like this suspension of disbelief, just like completely shatters, come crashing down, like a White House chandelier that's being shot by um, by a machine gun fire, for example. I guess. I, I feel like I feel like if you walked into this movie with suspension of disbelief, that's kind of your own fault, you know. <laughs> oh, you're, you're making this about me now. <laughs> <laughs> Just that, like you know, you you don't uh, if you have a Bernie's Mountain Dog, right? Like you you don't have uh, Fabergé eggs sitting on a low hanging coffee table, right? Like you know. <laughs> Oh man! So so uh, so, Mark. Let me. Let, I'm sorry. I'm just overwhelmed by this. What I wanted to say is, I didn't come here to make a good movie, Mark. I came here to make a difference. Right? Like, and, and I, <laughs> so that's. So I actually wanted to touch on this before we get too deep into whether the movie's actually good, uh, which I feel like is not that interesting of a conversation as always. Um, but is uh, is that 
this is like, I feel like one of the most important lines in the movie, which is Jamie Foxx is deciding that he is going to team up buddy cop style with this, the reject who didn't make his interview for the Secret Service, right? And they're going to like take on the terrorists themselves. And he's like talking about the legacy of Jefferson and Lincoln and kind of the tragedy of being an idealistic uh, person who then becomes a politician and how the office of president is really about running for reelection and it's kind of sad. And his big line is like, you know, Jamie Foxx is like, oh, you want to make history? And he's like, not history. I want to make a difference, right? And then, like, the difference that he makes is to, like, just go, go up to James Woods and, like, punch him in the face, right? It's like, <laughs> I'm going I'm to stab this guy with a pen, you know? Like, I'm going like, to, like, shoot this rocket launcher. Like, and I feel like there's something meaningful there. As, as silly as it sounds and as silly as I'm making it seem, I feel like that there is, there is it, it, there's some sort of, um, fail, cultural reconciliation that happens on like an emotional level between like the desire to make a difference and like the way and the way in which like both discourse in the world make making a difference somewhat of kind of a trivial and or like silly endeavor, right? It's like it's like you are the president of the United States, right? Like you make decisions every day that affect millions of people. You make a difference. Even if it's a difference that doesn't satisfy you, you're changing things. You're certainly changing a lot of stuff for a lot of people. What is it that you say that you want when you say that you want to make a difference? And what that is is like, is like, that's, is like it's the feeling you get in a Roland Emmerich movie when, like, like Kurt Russell cracks the Stargate, right? And it's like, you know, oh, oh, no, Kurt Russell is the military guy. It's James Spader who cracks yeah. the Stargate. And he's like, oh, go ahead, Jordan. Can I can I make a, a stab at what it is that uh, that that Jimmy Fox means when he says I want to make a difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that in modern Hollywood cinema, I want to make a difference means that I want all that is wicked in the world to be coalesced into a face which I can punch. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty safe to say. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, and and it's much more satisfying. Keep in mind, this guy, this president, presumably has already at the start of this movie like ended u.s troop deployments in uh you know in the entire middle east i think that's literally what they say (laughs) Um, which is which is consequential right like if it wasn't consequential the speaker of the house wouldn't be getting all you know all annoyed about it um if nothing else it's going to play hell with defense contracts it might have other effects down the line who knows you know lives saved uh, (laughs) dollars saved etc um, and yet that doesn't seem to matter as much as punching somebody in the face, right? Right, right, right. There's something about punching somebody in the face that may, feels like it, it changes things. Yeah. <laughs> so and, it, and I think it's, it's sort of because like, that's, that's an interaction between two people rather than an, an, action, an interaction between like millions and millions of people, right? That like yeah. on, on the scale that the president actually acts, nothing feels like an action, because we sort of assume that there are, there are wheels within wheels and fires within fires, and that like you know he, whatever he's the guy who signed the the waiver, but no one makes that decision on their own, right? It was all right. just institutional stuff, and I feel like it's actually um, my case for this being a good movie is that I think that it's sort of like it works on multiple interlocking levels, which is not really in itself enough to make something good, but is in itself kind of a nice thing and deserves to be to be noticed and paid attention to. 
So, like this, uh, this business that you have about the the main conflict in the movie being the classic man versus complicated White House. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there's something that isn't something that I'd really thought about uh, before listening to you talk about it. I will admit, but when, when, it does make a lot of sense to me, and I think that that's that's kind of profound. That's how we interact with the government, right? Like we know there's this building, we know what it looks like from the outside, but like what the heck goes on in there? It's a giant mystery. It's a really sort of threatening place. Um, and there's this idea that it's hard to navigate, that even if you are like a good president, you could get lost going from like one of the catacombs to one of the bedrooms. And as a result, lots of people might die, you know? So that's like one level of it. And then the whole making a difference thing is another level. And the third thing that I think is really super interesting is the, the moment that they lifted straight from the rock right at the end <laughs> where um, where the, the planes are flying in to like just blow up the White House because <laughs> they're like this is out of hand. We just gotta stop whatever's happened in that building. Yeah. We gotta stop it now. <laughs> yeah, and and they do the thing that they always do in movies. That's kind of dumb. Where like the jets can only fire missiles from a, a range that would actually be suicidally dangerous to fire a <laughs> missile from because you'd get caught in the explosion of the missile, right? And they're they're zooming in and they're like, "Do we have your clear to blow everything up?" And all of the sympathetic characters who are, like, in the control room are like, don't do it. And the general sort of, like, grits his teeth and says, yeah, blow it up, you know. And uh, and then Channing Tatum's daughter comes running out of the White House waving – is it an American flag? It's some other kind. No, of- it's the great seal of the presidency of the United States on yeah. a flag. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, the, and the pilot apparently recognizes this because why would you not? <laughs> well, because, he, because he can zoom in. You know, he enhances. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and he sees it and he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to blow that, that little girl up. You know, she's clearly one of ours. And this is like the, the elephant that's not even in the room, but is implied is drone warfare. Right. 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 That like, if you have a man on the front lines with his finger on the trigger of the missile, he will not blow up the innocent child because he's going to make a difference. Right. I, I thought where you're going with this, Jordan, and I, 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 I'm not joking about this. I'm kind of being serious about this. Is that like that was sort of a, a, a message of hope and redemption at the end of the movie, and sort of saying like, no, when you need when you know when the missiles are coming to to literally blow up the White House, there is a sort of metaphorical desire to blow up the system or sort of mm-hmm. like disregard it all. But no, you know the 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 future, our children, right? They yeah. lit- they literally carry the flag yeah. forward, right? <laughs> And tell us that no, this is worth saving. Yeah, yeah, there might even be a little bit of of like uh, of of subtext in this that like this little girl could be president one day, right? Yeah. Like, they, and because the movie is also sort of kind of uncomfortably, but then sort of forgets that it's about that we have a black president, right? And it's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's sort of about that, but it's sort of not. And then like the the bad guys are introduced as Nazis at one point, but then like that's actually not at all what they're doing, and it doesn't really have any can do with it so yeah so it's like it's definitely there's a little bit of of a message of hope for the future i do like how the jet fight jet pilot's just like nope not gonna do it like never mind you know he doesn't doesn't have to wait for someone to say like cancel the mission he's just like not doing it this is stupid Um, right right i I thought it was an interesting i'd like to set that moment against a moment earlier in the film that 
I found to be challenging and problematic, which is the moment where Channing Tatum has gone into the women's restroom. That's not the problematic thing about the moment in the movie. So Channing Tatum has has uh, he was on the White House tour. Or no, he he ran. He was on the White House tour with his daughter, and they get they get uh, locked up in a room, and uh, and the daughter has gone to the bathroom at this point when like the terrorists show up. So Channing Tatum has to go after his daughter. He like he asks the tour guide where the bathroom is, and he he runs out dodging many many bullets. Channing Tatum dodges so many bullets in this movie. Jesus Christ! And he, he jumps behind an expensive piece of furniture, and he goes down the women's bathroom. And when he's in the women's bathroom, he tries to call his daughter on her phone. Um, and and uh, then a, a terrorist sees him coming out of the bathroom and like runs into the bathroom to go kill him. And Channing Tatum jumps on the ground and like hides the gun that he's holding under his body and starts crying. Right, and is like, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. I'm just looking for my daughter. Right, like I'm on, I was on the tour, and then the the terrorist like briefly pauses and doesn't shoot him, and then Channing Tatum kills him, <laughs> shoots him with the gun and kills him, um, which I thought wasn't very sporting. Right, I thought that, <laughs> like I thought that that was like I didn't kind come of come here to be sporting. I came here to be yeah. awesome. Yeah. And, I mean, and honestly, what that is to me is that's like that's like a Hamas tactic. Right, that's the like. Don't blow up huh. the human shields. There, are, this is a school. You know, like they, there's no weapons here except for the basement full of weapons. But there are children on top of it, <laughs> right? Like, why? You know, and then it, so it's like a ba- this whole the theater of the theater of civilianhood, right? Mm. And, and that Channing Tatum engages in, which to me is one that's uh, generally um, frowned upon <laughs> by uh, the sort of idea of America that uh, Roland Emmerich t- tries to advance, and the kind of of idea of America that authorizes because because. Because it's it's because of people like Channing Tatum in that scene that people like that airline, the airplane pilot in the later scene, don't actually get to decide whether they blow up the target or not, right? Mm-hmm. It's like because the little girl waving the flag could be strapped with a bomb, right? Like I mean, again, maybe I'm well, I'm importing more darkness in the movie than there is. Maybe that scene was really just meant as being like clever, you know? But it definitely made it seem a little bit darker to me, and, and uh, juxtaposing a lot of these complex geopolitical issues against each other for, throughout the film. Um, well, well, that yeah. is interesting. I, I totally, I didn't, uh, I didn't catch that the first time around either. I, I was definitely like right there with him. I thought that he was just showing that he was a clever guy who could, uh, yeah, 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 I and mean, he could take charge of a situation. Yeah, but no, but that, that is like. Um, that is like really a jerk move by the yeah. standards of uh, of action herohood, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like you have to let them know that you're a combatant. Yeah, I I, I have a machine gun now, right? Not yeah. like oh, oh. <laughs> if, I, I have no weapons. Ha ha ha! <laughs> Please don't kill me. I have a family. Ha ha ha! <laughs> Well, and it also draws to one of the other really great lines in the in the movie, um, which is the one where the evil terrorist says he's diabetic. And I don't remember – like do you remember that moment in the movie? There's this really weird moment, which is sort of played as a joke. Um, and I, I think they're like all complaining about problems that they have or something. Oh, no, I remember what it is. It's, it's like, cake. oh, you – what? Isn't it about the cake? Like, yeah, there's a cake. He's retiring, yeah. He's, 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 James Woods has a retirement cake, and he offers and he offers a piece of it to the terrorist, the, the, like his sort of like his, his like adobo or whatever the name of the mini boss from Double Dragon is, his like Goro, like Titanic Tatum before the final boss fight, um, and he offers him a piece of cake. And he's like, "I'm diabetic, you jerk!" Right? <laughs> and that's just like the end of the scene. Um, and I just I felt like that moment to me said, "Well, because this is also kind of a diehardish movie. It's very diehardish. There's like the hacker." 
hacker guy who's like doing the hacker thing. And the, the, there's originally a diehard reveal, which is that, oh, we think these are ideological terrorists, but really they're after a whole bunch of money. Oh, that makes sense. And then there's like a double reveal where it's like, no, this isn't diehard. They're actually after a global nuclear war for some reason. Right. Like, uh, but, but there's a moment where, where it's like, okay, these guys are Arab terrorists, the news reports. And then like we find out from Maggie Gyllenhaal and her crack team of investigators that they are like a combination of people who had been on the Secret Service watch list as potential assassins for the president. And yeah. they've been teamed up into sort of an assassin dream team, right? Like, right. Um, and, and it's like, well, what are the characteristics that these people have? And this moment where the, the head terrorist like reveals this like little vulnerability, not only, not only the vulnerability of his inability of his pancreas to regulate his blood sugar, but the, inability, the, the vulnerability of his pride toward his boss not being aware of the inability of his pancreas to, to metabolize blood sugar, right? Like, it's like, I'm personally hurt that you didn't remember during our long and storied relationship as traitors against this country that I can't eat cake, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to me, that's sort of human. That's like the, the sort of final step in that arc, which shows that, like, the terrorists are also kind of like us. You know, whoever the terrorists are, like the evil people, the threats, that like the peoples is peoples, like people across this movie aren't really all of that fundamentally different from each other, which is part of what makes it uncomfortable. Um, Although, did you just drop a Muppets reference into this <laughs> conversation? You did, didn't you? Is, is potatoes, is music, yeah. is dancing, is tomatoes. <laughs> I mean, the, the rogues gallery of terrorists exists on a sliding scale of like usness, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Which, which is sort of general in general or in this movie? Oh, in, in, in general, but in this movie, like each one of them has has sort of a place in the continuum, which is you can sort of observe it by uh, how they behave towards Chan Kadem's daughter um, and how many human frailties they uh, they demonstrate. Um, so that like James Woods is clearly the most human, and then his number two is like a little bit less human, um, and like wait. This guy who's like, you know, he's just waiting, waiting to catch a bullet, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Oh, man, jeez, I'm like totally, I'm totally spent. I'm not spent, but it's yeah. just like, oh, boy. So c- can we talk about the Die Hard angle a little bit more? Because it's, it's really specifically a Die Hard movie, right? Oh, yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. The hacker even like puts on Beethoven and dances around uh, like while he's doing his hacking and so yeah, forth. It's, it's, um, and what, I wanna, what I'm sort of interested in is like, I mean, I loved this movie. I really enjoyed it quite a lot, but it's no Die Hard. And I'm curious about what it is that it sort of misses that Die Hard hits, do we think? Other than being made, you know, several decades too late. Um, well, sustained tension, for one, I think is a big one. Is that, you know, Die Hard is a, is a, is a study in, in rising action. Right, uh, where it's like mm-hmm. the, the stakes are constantly building, the momentum is constantly moving forward. The reveals happen at a, at a sort of time, at moments that at the time felt fresh, but now have become very familiar because they're some of the best moments to make these sorts of reveals. Mm-hmm. Right, like the idea that the guy being who was killed with the chain comes back at the end was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, the, the right. world was new, right? But also, just the movie seems very tightly composed. A great example of this in Die Hard is um, is the the bearded guy. Right, like the the guy who works with his wife, with with John McClane's wife, who like shows up early in the movie as kind of as a jerk, and he's at the business meeting, and we don't like him. And then there's like the sense that over the course of the movie, it's, it becomes increasingly likely that he's going to get involved in what's happening. And then he finally decides to negotiate with the terrorists, right, and like tell them about John McClane. At which point, there is this like 
long moments that's like you know 25 to 30 seconds long where like john mcclain realizes that this guy is going to get killed if he keeps talking right mm-hmm. but in fact that he probably it's already probably too late and he's probably going to get killed and then there's like there's just they, they stretch it out for like just the right amount of time and then they kill him like really abruptly and they do it right. with no question right and that's something that Die Hard does a lot is that there's like build 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 boom Right, top <laughs> top of the building explodes once. In White yeah. House, down, the building explodes like twelve times. Right, right, and the, the, the Capitol Dome explodes. The Capitol Dome explodes in the first act of the movie, and that's not even yeah. the biggest explosion. And that is the biggest explosion. Well, no, maybe the missile that takes out Air Force One. Um, so that's one difference. But I'm yeah. sure there are others. Uh, did you have others in mind? No, no, no. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good one. Like in this, it tells you something about a movie that the interval between the president realizing that he could shoot a rocket launcher out of the back of his armored limo and him actually doing that is like a solid 15 seconds, yeah. you know? Yeah, that, that would have been like a that would have been an act of Die Hard. <laughs> I think another difference between this movie and Die Hard is the relationship between the protagonist and the comic relief is very different. Um, because, oh, cause, and also, like, so, so the, in Die Hard, you have two characters, right? You have the guy, the limo driver, and you have the cop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Reginald Vell Johnson, and you have the guy who kind of looks like a young usher, right? And they're, like, hanging out. And they're both comic relief characters, um, and, and John McClane, like, talks to both of them at various points about, like, his sort of issues with his wife, and, and they have, like, a very friendly relationship, right? So, like, these comic relief characters who take you out of the tension of the movie are also your friends, and their people is the audience members that you like and you identify with and you think are, are good and cool, right? And, like, and they also, like allow the villains to be truly monstrous um, because you have these sort of more human guys who are kind of outside of what's happening. And now White House Down has characters like that. It has the Maggie Gyllenhaal character who's working for the Secret Service who's trying to figure out what's happening. And then it also has the, tour, the White House tour guide who is like comes in in the third act as sort of like a minor sidekick. Um, mm-hmm. Neither of those characters to me... Well, I, A, neither of them are really all that funny. Um, they, 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 they could be comic relief. They probably should be comic relief. I mean, the tour yeah. guide is funny. Yeah. Uh, the, the tour guide is funny because he clearly, like, you know, there's a, there's a file somewhere in some Hollywood script doctor's desk that says, like, how to write a comic relief character for an action movie. <laughs> yes. <You know? laughs> and it's a Mad Lib. And it says, like, they didn't teach me about this in blank profession. Exactly. Right. It's like, really hit on the wrong woman. You know, like, that happens at one point. But, yeah activities that you're not threatening uh but yeah yeah so like so there's not the same amount of bonding like like the 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 relationship between channing tatum's character and maggie gyllenhaal's character in this movie falls a little bit short i think of where it would need to be to to really come together um and i don't mean it necessarily has to be romantic but it's like she's his prospective boss right that's their relationship in this movie is that he has a friend who did him a favor and got him a job interview with her. And that's when they meet at the beginning of the movie. And their arc over the course of the movie is like her being the external diehard person who's trying to fix the problem through institutional channels but can't, right? Like, and, and then him being the John McClane person who gets down and dirty in the trenches and gets it done, right? Like, and like gets in there with his, with his two hands and his, and his A shirt, like covered in various you know, miscellaneous mud and, uh, and goes in there and shoots the bad guys. And then she develops sort of a grudging respect for him. 
but they don't have any sort of interplay or banter. There's there's very little tension in their relationship, um, and and it's hard to say what direction it would go in. It almost demands to be a sexual relationship because he's Channing Tatum and she's Maggie Gyllenhaal, and that's sort of what we come to expect from those kinds of characters. Like she tends to play like fringy it girls, and he tends to play like dreamboat stripper dudes and or GI Joes, right? Like it's, <laughs> and or like and, and, and or like stepping up to various streets and whatnot. But um, <laughs> but he was actually in that one, but not very much anyway. Just a case. Is going to enrich the like narrative of the character, and they kind of didn't. Um, her whole part in the movie doesn't really charge it up, which is not she doesn't do a bad job, but it's just like I'm not quite sure what she's just showing the level of frustration that the institutional channels have. She's she's like the big the big government that we have to decide whether or not we want to blow up at the end of the movie. Right, right, like, um, right. Yeah, she's like yeah. the, the good people who work in government and aren't yeah. actually able to accomplish things through institutional channels. But yeah. she doesn't really interact with Channing Tatum in any very meaningful way. Yeah. I feel like to the extent that he has a human relationship, there's the daughter who he really cares about. Yeah. And I think it's, it's quite significant that they are kept apart. Once the once the movie really begins, you know, once the uh, once the <laughs> the White House goes down, as it yeah. were, <laughs> yeah. once it descends, yeah, yeah, um, she's she's never in the same room with him because that would humanize him too much. Um, and then there's the president, who like they actually do have a, a nice like. You know, the, the actors had good chemistry. I don't know if, how, like, how well written the uh, the relationship was, but I felt like, like, you know, they uh, they vibed well together. Yeah. But that's a very different kind of thing because it turns it into an escort mission, right? Which uh, are notoriously terrible. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Nobody wants to play that part of the video game. It's always boring. Yeah, I've been playing a lot of Wing Commander. Those escort missions are just the worst. <laughs> <laughs> They're even dumber in StarCraft when it's like, walk this person next to these tanks and try not to get them shot. That sort okay. of thing. So here's but. another difference between Die Hard, Die Hard and White House Down. Um, and this is specifically about the, the tank top of the protagonist, right? <laughs> I, uh, now... No, I have a serious point to make here. Like the the one from in White House Down that Channing Tatum wears is clearly meant to evoke that of Bruce Willis and Die Hard, right? Um, and I'm looking at pictures of Bruce Willis and Die Hard here, and this might just be more be related to my my perception of Channing Tatum, but I feel like in Die Hard the tank top was there to make Bruce Willis seem vulnerable, right? This is also connected to Bruce Willis, you know, uh, not having any shoes, having to walk on the glass, and that sort of thing. Whereas in White House Down, Channing uh, Tatum wearing a tank top is there for a beefcake, right? To show off his tremendous body. Yeah, Sure, to, to make him not vulnerable, right? It's like... <laughs> it yeah, shows well, it's, a, it's a breastplate is what it is. It's a breastplate, yeah. you know, with, with barely concealed nipples. Uh, <laughs> Joel Schumacher style. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, but yeah, but I think this also is as much a study in the evolution of the A-shirt, right? As a garment. Mm-hmm. Which I, I really feel like... I, I would. Re- See, here's the thing. Many, many, many micro rant here. The A-shirt is a marvelous garment. The A-shirt, uh, commonly known as a wife beater, is a superior undershirt. So let's uh, it is, it is, well, wait, Pete, I, I want to I dispute your claim because I think it is <laughs> contrary to fact, but let's, uh, <laughs> but let's continue. 
Well, I'll say not for theatrical purposes because when you're under light, the main purpose of an undershirt is to hide your skin from the like the audience, right? And that's why you wear an undershirt under a shirt. But I, I in my experience working in New York City in the summers, it was amazingly more comfortable to go to work in an A shirt than in a, a crew neck T-shirt. Um, a muscle shirt undershirt is also an option, but uh, and that sort of gives you sort of a little bit of the better of both worlds, but not quite the best. But I mean, the the, the point is that the famous movie characters who wear A shirts like Raging Bull and John McClane, like it's a working class garment for people who don't have air conditioning. Like that's what the A shirt is. Yeah. It's, and it, it's because it's, it's colder. It's sort of like being shirtless, but it's not immodest. Right. And it's something an adult <laughs> man would wear. Um, and, but nowadays more places have air conditioning, uh, but also, um, but now the A shirt, A, it had this reputation because of its use in film as now like, and it's, it's being called a wife beater as something that like tough guys wear, right? Or like make violent men wear this garment. And then it also becomes because of the culture of bodybuilding and the culture of like gym culture and, and all this stuff, it, you know, it's like a tank top is a racy and, and exposing kind of garment. So it, I guess it's bifurcated right like on one hand like we become less comfortable with its working class uses as a garment to keep you cool and we've become more comfortable with its uses like a parading fashion garment um i don't know matt what were your thoughts about undershirts I, the, the point of an undershirt for me is to to hold off pit stains as long in the day as i possibly can you know mm-hmm. and so like uh an a shirt does not keep if, especially on like a hot day you know it does not keep uh, sweat uh from your underarms from you know getting out there in your uh in your dress shirt right your your real <laughs> shirt yeah, I'm, I'm with you, absolutely, Matt. Like, what I look for in an undershirt is a maxi pad duct taped to either armpit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah, I mean, no, like, if, yeah. you look, if you look into the history of, of, like, costume, right, like, into the history of clothes that people wear, uh, there were these things called shields at one point. And I think you can still get them dress shields, more for women than for men. But there were shields for men that, like, uh, you know, that, like, uh, clipped into an elaborate, like, pectoral garter belt um, that, uh, you know, was essentially a maxi pad under your, uh, under your armpit. And so, like, um, so that's, that is the point. In fact, I would do, I would do one of those, like, half-length, you know, football scrimmage shirts, right? That that barely covers your nipples, uh, <laughs> right? Rather than an A shirt, before I would wear an A shirt as an undershirt. So you know, deepening the texture of this of this meta narrative, I'm looking at, at production stills from uh, A Good Day to Die Hard because I was thinking, what kind of undershirt is Bruce is John McClane wearing these days? Because he's still in movies. You know what? John McClane has gone with the new the hot, the new hotness in undershirts, the deep V. He's got the deep V neck going on, uh, which is I know uh, I don't know if you guys have encountered a, a certain uh, predilections toward this garment, but it's notable that that John McClane wears a, an undershirt with a deep v-neck cut and his son wears a crew neck shirt uh so they don't get along because they have different undershirts underneath there. <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> uh but yeah anyway at any rate um so yeah so channing tatum wears a john mcclain shirt in this movie but it's like a sort of boasting sexual john mcclain shirt and not a like i just walked across broken glass and all i got was this lousy a shirt undershirt <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But yeah, don't don't feel like you have to let the wife beaters win. You know, they don't get to name your undershirt just because they hit someone. That's, it's not yeah, right. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of uncomfortable even sort of uh, using that term. I don't. I I yeah. Tend not I don't to, like using it either. Yeah, I tend. But to. I do like buying the undershirts, so I want to reappropriate it. 
Right, exactly. Not reappropriate the term, reappropriate the garment. No, 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 but that anyway. is our shirt. Our <laughs> shirt, you know? <laughs> um, so how about the fact that the president gets shot and almost dies in this movie <laughs> after everything that he does? Um, and it's saved I, by Lincoln's pocket watch as well. Right? Yes, by Link- but lies dead for like 15 minutes or at least 10 minutes. Although I did stop to make burgers at one point. So like I'm not sure exactly how long the movie lasted. Um, but yeah, like – like, like he says, he's going to go make a difference. He, you know, as Jordan has discussed, like coalesces and encapsulates all of his feelings of evil about like the human race and the human condition into James Woods. Punches James Woods in the face, stabs him in the neck with a with a fountain with, a, with a, a fountain pen, like an old fashioned fountain pen, uh, and then James Woods shoots him. Right, and then like he he, he says to James was like, "Come on, you've been defending presidents for twenty years, your whole career. You're not going to shoot the president. Are you going to shoot me?" And James was like, "Yup," and then kills him. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if it were like a quill pen? That I mean, I say this not having seen the movie, but a quill pen, and then he's like staggering back with a giant ostrich feather sticking out of his neck or something. Wouldn't that wouldn't, the wouldn't you? already strains credulity, but. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, sure. I that's mean, why a, that's not? A, a Terry Gilliam solution to a Roland Emmerich problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can picture it very, very quickly in my mind's eye. I can picture that that you just described better than I can picture the actual scene in the movie that I saw like not two weeks ago. <laughs> so that's a. Uh, how know. did you okay, all come? So, to see, how did you all come to see this movie? Is it on Netflix or something? It just came out on DVD. Oh, right? okay. Uh, yeah, and on uh, digital rental as well. Digital yeah. rental. Yeah, I watched it on iTunes. Where did you watch it, Mark? Uh, yeah, on, on iTunes. Um, true story. Uh, my wife and I are just married. Uh, we're on our honeymoon and mini oh. moon of sorts. And, uh, you know, it's part of a romantic evening and together. This is one of the movies we decided to watch. So. <laughs> Well, that's very nice of you. Get Thanks a little candy, some eye candy, right? You know, like appreciate that what women appreciate in movies, which is a, a tight plot, a lot of uh, melodramatic uh, – I should have kept going with metaphors for tightness and or other things that are related to channel. Oh, I mean, just just like a bulging musical score, you know? And, yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. Oh, like, oh. It's, like a sort of a, a sweaty character development sequence. <laughs> a kind of a, a sort of extremely ripped plot development. <laughs> I think that uh, from your description that you guys neither have any pinning on what motivates the female libido nor on this movie that you saw because the plot is anything but tight. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> I'm just saying that sometimes you want the set design in a movie to take you into a stairwell and, and throw you up against the wall, is all I'm saying. This conversation took a strange turn. Let's, <laughs> let's go back to talk about the, the, the pocket watch that's stopping the bullet, right? Yes. Because um, like, when, in thinking of other movies where someone is shot, but an object blocks the bullet. Right. Like, you know, obvious examples are things like uh, in, in Back to the Future, right? Doc's wearing the bulletproof vest. And uh, in, in the third Back to the Future, future movie, Marty wears the, uh, the metal plate, right? And that stops. Oh, sorry, spoiler alerts for Back to the Future 1 and 3. Um, those things pl- uh, that block, the, um, block the bullets. Um, those are all like very much plot driven bullet deflection devices, right? In other words, like, you know, some uh, interchange between characters and the sense of, like, needing to protect yourself and, and, and that sort of thing. Like, it, 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 it's, it, those realizations come through the developing, uh, the, the character developments, and then they put, put it on, and it's sort of obvious that, boom, when, when the person's shot, and it's like, oh, I see, oh, that thing, yeah, because that came from there. Uh, it all makes sense now. 
was anything like that going on in White House town? There was just sort of the sense like, you know, my wife got me this Lincoln pocket watch because Lincoln and I'm a black president and Lincoln freed the slaves. And, oh, it just happened to be in the right spot to stop the bullet. Was there anything more than that going on, or was that it? I mean, so there have been several instances where this has actually happened to the president, right? Or at least or somebody – like it happened to Teddy Roosevelt, right? That he was – is the most famous instance where he was giving a speech and he was shot. It didn't hit a pocket watch. It hit like a – was it a knife or a blast glasses case? His I'm trying to remember exactly what the perhaps? object was. A, what? It's flask. The it's president flask. flask. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Um, no, it's uh, several times Lincoln's watch specifically has stopped bullets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually got magical powers. Um, <laughs> oh, a glasses case and a bundle of manuscript in the pocket of Roosevelt's heavy coat. Thank you to this day in history. Uh, and, I mean, he was injured, but he finished his speech, right? And it didn't. I thought Reagan might have had something in his pocket when he was shot, too, that might have helped him out. Although that might be part of it. So, okay. So, one of the things that this movie does is it takes bad things that have happened to the presidency and to the White House, and it turns them into good things. And the way oh. that it does this... Mm-hmm. Is that and the most notable instance of it is the burning of the White House, right? Which is uh, it's shown in the in the painting. It's what happens during the War of eighteen twelve. We are stopped on our White House tour and reminded that the British burned the White House in the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, and and later on in the movie, as a final effort to sort of smoke out the terrorists so that he can make his last offensive, Channing Tatum sets the Lincoln bedroom on fire, right? Like and like <laughs> 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 yeah, totally unclear why he really thought that would help. Honestly. Exactly, but. The- Channing Tatum starts going through that because Channing Tatum sees the painting. Yeah. You see a moment of seeing the painting of that White yeah. House on fire, and he gets an idea, <laughs> which is to set the White House on fire. At uh, this point in the movie, he's just walking through the White House, seeing things on the walls and doing them. Right. <laughs> and what this is, is it sort of treats the White House like Fantasia from The NeverEnding Story, in that like the White House is a thing that exists because of all the things that have happened up until this point, and all the stories that we tell about the White House that matter to our culture right like and like the white house exists as a as a manifestation and monument to its own history uh which is our history which is something we all believe in and and excites us and gets us motivated so the burning of the white house to the for the british while it might seem like uh, by the british might seem like a bad thing because they burned the white house uh is is a good thing because it's part of what made the white house what it is today Right, and so it gets sort of uh, trotted out as like part of the White House's history. I felt like the moment where Jamie Foxx has the pocket watch in his—I mean, I immediately connected it to the Teddy Roosevelt moment, right? Where it's like because that's the most famous instance of that, where it's like getting shot. It's almost—it's also almost sort of like a type anti-type hermeneutical biblical issue, where it's like when things happen to characters in the New Testament that also happen to characters in the Old Testament, it is a reaffirmation to the people who study and interpret the Bible that the New Testament is fulfilling the promises and covenants of the Old Testament, right? Like, this is a way of looking at the Bible, right? Where, like, Jesus is Joshua, like, the names are similar. This is about Bethlehem and the city of David and the coming of David and, and, like, just echoing all these things. So, like, if the president is carrying something in his pocket that stops a bullet, then it's a sign that, like, this is, like, the second coming of Teddy Roosevelt. And, like, the power (laughs) of the president is with him, right, to fulfill his destiny. It's, like, sort of way of looking at this sort of thing and to a degree that he is super lincoln right because yes. he gets shot and doesn't die 
Yes. Like he fulfills the promise that Lincoln had that was, you know, <laughs> just came up a little bit short. Yeah. There's also there's also a, like a very straightforward uh, Chekhov gunning of it, right? Like if there is a character who puts a hard metal object into his pocket in the first half of a movie, then like you'd better stab him because he is bulletproof now. <laughs> I do wonder whether in an earlier draft they talked about Teddy Roosevelt, but they changed it to Lincoln because they gave the Jamie they made the Jamie Foxx character very fixated on Lincoln as, mm-hmm. as a sort of simplifying, streamlining factor for his character. Um, <laughs> well, and I just, I don't think that many people are aware of the Teddy Roosevelt incident, you know? I mean, it's it's interesting. It fits with the Teddy Roosevelt legend very nicely. Um, but, you know, a president who gets shot and lives is just not as interesting. So I think that they they probably did have that in an earlier draft and got a lot of scratching heads, you know? Yeah. Can, can I, I know we're running, we're going to run a little bit short on time. Can I, can I make a couple of quick hits on this movie? Uh, the first being that if someone confronts you with, asks you, hey, I think that you are conspiring with the guy who kidnapped the president and murdered him to start a nuclear war. Perhaps the first thing you should respond with is not, can you prove it? Uh, another thing, um, and maybe we can expand on this a little bit more. I just, I just wanted to voice that. It's like that's a very, that's not the best thing to say in that situation. I do love that he gets to say, "Take him into custody, General," as because the general like is like, "Okay, whatever. We'll get someone else to do that." Uh, I love the line, "Consider this a coup d'état. Get this trash off my lawn," uh, which is another <laughs> <laughs> nice little uh, Air Force um, One callback there, right? <laughs> get yeah, off yeah, my exactly. plane. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Exactly. Also, how do they know that the nuclear weapons aren't still launching just because they see the little girl waving the flag on the White House lawn? That could mean any number of things, but they all immediately conclude that it means everything is fine. Um, another big thing about this movie... Beep, 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 beep. The, it's because yep. they've all seen The Rock. That's why. Yeah, it's, it's, there it is. There's so many references to other movies. So here's a big one. Um, uh, the, the end of this movie, everyone's really happy. Right. That's pretty clear. Right. Like everyone who's still alive after after this movie has ended is like, man, we saved the White House sort of. And the president isn't dead. And everybody around the world is uniting under the president's aegis of friendship. Right. Right. Um, And like the the White House tour guy is hitting on Channing Tatum's ex-wife, which is that would be slumming it for her, I'm supposing. (laughs) But uh, but they are literally standing next to literally dozens if not hundreds of dead bodies at this point right like like there are dead terrorists like all over the place there have been multiple explosions in the middle of downtown dc the capitol building was just annihilated right like and everyone is like oh man now in independence day i kind of get it right because it's like civilization has been destroyed in a couple you've had a couple days to get used to it you've had since january 2nd right so to like get used to the idea july 2nd rather not january jesus you've had since july 2nd to get used to it now it's july 4th we beat the aliens we can all take a breath and be happy that we won this is like this whole thing has taken like maybe like um it's almost real time it's like maybe two hours right since this like horrible horrible terrorist attack that's killed all these people and everyone is just so happy and relieved that the good guys won one uh and that's like totally Roland Emmerich and is being stretched to its limit in this movie um but anyway the one thing I really want to bring up that I want to ask you guys about unless you have opinions about any of those things which are really just just quick hits is how what do you guys think about the big line in the movie the president wants to do the thing which is repeated a whole bunch of times did you guys latch onto this line like I did um, this um, yeah, is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's referencing the, the the helicopter low buzz of the reflecting pool and by the Lincoln Memorial, right? Right, right, right. Which is that whatever the thing. 
the president wants to do the thing means the president wants Marine One, the Marine One helicopter to like like do a low flyby. He basically wants to, to top gun. He wants to maverick the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he says the president wants to do the thing, right? And and the, and because the president wants to do it, the thing happens, right? And and I was just sort of thinking about how a lot of this movie seems to be about Roland Emmerich's personal fascination with the White House, which he seems like really interested in for reasons we've discussed, and um, the office of the presidency. The office not of forget. the presidency. Yeah, yep. Independence. And which, of course, we've seen in Independence Day. I mean, he's one of the major artistic contributors of the century to the mythos of the presidency. I would say, although last century as well, because Independence Day was last century. Um, geez, but uh, but like the the little girl sitting in Marine One as uh, finally safe, as everyone says, like the president wants to do the thing, and the sense that all is right with the world because the president wants to do something, and the people who work for the president are going to execute it. And like, how how elegant is that? I mean, it's a huge oversimplification of what the office of the presidency is, and it's not one that I generally see as the one that culture forwards as the main reason we should be excited about the presidency, which is that if the president wants to do something, even if it's frivolous and silly, like yeah. we believe that the president's heart is in the right place, and moreover, we do whatever he says, right? Like, like it's just That's interesting just, that, that like yeah. the president enjoying the perks of office. Is like yeah. a sign that all is right with the world. Yeah, which is really, I think. Uh, I mean, that's that. When I hear that, the way you put it, it makes me think of the English Restoration, right? Which is what, like one of the things that I remember that being articulated to me that explained that was like, you know, when the rights of the king are guaranteed. Everyone else's rights are also guaranteed, which is not really the way it usually works with dictatorships and yeah, yeah. autocracy. But there was something about the way that people felt about the Magna Carta and the way that people felt about British constitutionalism that they were willing to accept that, like, it was better to have a king who had a clear role uh, than to have, like, a lord protector in a republic uh, whose role was, like, subject to the whims of the powerful and influential, as if the presidency were not that. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want to treat it with cynicism because I do feel like there's something in there that is kind of a childlike aspiration. And I don't want to just say like, well, it's destructive because it promotes, you know, autocracy. Uh, it's anti-democratic um, because it does seem like there's a dream there that's worth worth something. Well, I think it's the, – the dream of it is that, uh, is that it's a simple pleasure, right? Like the thing that the president wants is not, uh, not smuggling in Marilyn Monroe. It's, uh, it's doing a flyby of a reflecting pool, right? And that like the military-industrial complex will never do that because it doesn't have simple joys, right? Right. right, right so again, right. it's the idea that, uh, that a, a human leader is always going to be um, – is always going to be better, is never going to yeah. really lead us wrong yeah. because they still have the, the heart of a child in a certain sense. Yeah, I, I interpreted the, the flyby by the, by the Lincoln Memorial as just the president, for lack of a better word, letting his hair down, having fun being the cool president. Yeah. yeah. Right? You know, sort of that, uh, you know, it's like, it's like Barack Obama shooting hoops, right? You know, right. It, it, that's, that's connected to uh, President Jimmy Fox, like getting his Air Jordans, <laughs> putting his Air Jordans on. <laughs> Right <laughs> before they uh, go off into the into the car for the ridiculous uh, donuts in the White House lawn scene. <laughs> Your first act as president is to blow up the White House. <laughs> that was a great line. Yeah. And Maggie Gyllenhaal was so world weary when she said that to this evil Speaker of the House character. Like, really? It's like the first thing you're going to do is blow up the White House, destroy the White House. Oh man. Oh man, I don't know if I have anything left in me, Matt, about this. One. <laughs> I think I think we got to blow the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only left to do, guys. Oh man, absolutely. Well, uh, as the benevolent Lord Protector of the podcast, I declare this podcast down. Uh, 
<laughs> Rather wants to do his thing, guys. Rather wants to do the thing. <laughs> and what thing is that? Uh, it's to tell you that if you want to uh, talk about White House Town, you can continue the conversation by emailing us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or calling, call or text 203-285-6401. Uh, also, you can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. A uh, lot of exciting stuff going on on Overthinking It, including uh, Pop Fixers. If you haven't seen the recent episode of Pop Fixers, which uh, uh, tackles the Mario problem, um, you know, we did a uh, we did a good uh, episode, and we also sort of stared deeply into the navel of pop fixing and what pop fixers is and uh, how one how one pop fixes or fixes pop. Um, like uh, attorneys general or courts martial. So, uh, you know, you can check that out uh, on the site. This podcast will be back next week uh, with more uh, overthinking it. Probably I'm, I'm going to guess that we're going to talk about hunger games next week. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I feel like, I feel like this was the kindling and we're about ready to catch fire. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, we'll be back with that until then. You can find this and more at overthinking it.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't deserve. I love when the terrorist is going into the White House for the first time. And he shoots the poor guy at the desk, and he shoots the guy at the metal detector, and then he looks in the eyes of the portrait of George Washington, <laughs> and then he shoots the portrait of George Washington <laughs> in the head. That's that just – that's a villain. That's a bad man right there. That is a bad, bad man. <laughs> hey, guys. You know, the last time Roland Emmerich made a movie about the, the prominent feature of the president of the United States as an action hero – uh, a certain uh, prominent character actor was in that movie, and his uh, absence was quite notable in this one. I gotta say, White House Down might have been better. White House Down! <laughs> the White House is down! I better call my brother! I better call my mother! I better call my lawyer! Okay, what I want you to do is order all the troops back into the Middle East, and now we're gonna launch a nuclear attack on Tehran! Uh, and forget this my lawyer! Where's my pager? James Woods is waiting for my page.